Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. We're here today on Miranda Warnings with Ellen Backlett Coons, former director of physician services for Halifax Health in Daytona Beach, Florida, until she exposed Medicaid fraud being perpetuated by the hospital uh, and worked with the Department of Justice to stop it. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. We're very excited to have you here, Ellen. We're also very excited that you're going to be speaking at the New York State Bar Association's Presidential Summit, which is taking place on Wednesday, January 16th, 2019, at the New York Hilton uh, in Manhattan. And you'll be part of a panel that the New York State Bar Association is putting on about uh, whistleblower laws and uh, how they how they work. So... Uh, Ellen, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your uh, work uh, regarding the uh, Medicaid Medicaid fraud at Halifax Health. You were the director of physician services at Halifax Health. Yes, um, I when I left Halifax in 2014 after my case, I had worked there for almost 21 years. Um, I had worked in corporate finance for about eight years. I had worked. I think four and a half years in compliance. And from there, I was promoted to director of physician services in 2008. And at that time, I already had 15 years with Halifax when um, moving from a compliance role into a director role, saw more of the operations side and realized that what I thought took place in compliance really didn't happen on the operation side. So we would do audits in compliance, and when we found overpayment, we would turn it into the business office, and I thought these overpayments were being returned and dealt with. However, when I was in the operation role, I saw that that did not happen. Um, and so also so in the, the big picture here, and I, I, mm-hmm. I, I want to just uh, talk about what the big picture is, and then we can talk about how we got how, how you yeah, got there. Okay. So the big picture was that at Halifax, um, there was uh, an incentive compensation package for doctors that were making uh, referrals that uh, resulted in un, uh, oftentimes unnecessary surgeries as well as unnecessary hospital admissions um, that impacted obviously both uh, Medicaid uh, and as well as uh, obviously thousands of patients, right? That that was the bulk of the problem. That there were unnecessary surgeries that were being performed. Well, the bulk of the issue was the stark violations we had that came from the contract. So part of the upcoding and the allegations with the surgery and the admissions all. Um, was kind of results of the contracts as well. But because the Department of Justice only intervened in the Stark part of the case and kind of made the case go into two parts, um, you know, the Stark is what gets all the focus. But, you know, so um, you'll hear in the There was two claims in in your case. One was the Stark claim, which was, uh, a a doctor in a healthcare institution is not allowed to 
basically make recommendations to go to a facility that they actually have an economic interest in. Is that kind of a summary? Well, in summary, we had contracts with physicians where we would give employed physician profits from the hospital side. So if they were to increase their admissions or use cheaper drugs, they would get more profits than if they had less services used. So we kind of incentivized the doctors to use more hospital service, cut costs, or what we called, um, we wanted them to have skin in the game. So if the the doctors mm -hmm. recommended certain additional treatments, uh, et cetera, they would get uh, kind of a bonus uh, from this uh, pool uh, in in the form of money. Yes. Kind of like a kickback. Yes. And I believe at one time, when the original complaint was filed, it was both for kickback and Stark, but it was Stark that the government intervened in. So that's kind of what was, um, actually that was one on summary motion. But so the bonus pool related to our oncology physicians and what was even worse than oncology was the issue we had with contracts in our neurosurgery where we had three neurosurgeons that were making way above fair market value. Right. Um, and, and when I mean way above is fair market value for their specialty may have been $600,000. And the highest one was that, I don't remember if it was $2.1 million or $1.9 million. Right. And then it came into commercial reasonable as well because Halifax paid all their expenses, let them keep all the collections, gave them bonuses, paid for their cars, gave them a lot of other things. So to give an example, one of the physicians, I believe, from his deposition in private practice before being a hospital-employed physician, he made $350,000 a year. He become an employee, and he's making $1.7 million a year. Right, which, and uh, so that additional, <laughs> that additional one point five was coming from bonuses for surgeries that were being recommended in some instances or in fact in many instances uh were unnecessary uh and and these were neurosurgeons that were recommending spinal fusions that didn't necessarily need to occur and i'm not a physician so i can't say that and those are allegations since they weren't litigated okay Uh, but we we had peer reviews and things to support uh, some of those allegations but the unnecessary surgeries did not go to trial Um, and it was when the department of justice intervened and settled that part of the case for 85 million dollars you know some of these um uh overpayments or money that's tainted you know, it's the same money in the different buckets. So when the DOJ had them on the hook for a billion dollars and they settled for 85, uh, to go to court and try to litigate this part of it when some of that money is the same and they use the, you know, the ability to pay as a defense, I think would have been difficult. That's why you hear so much about the Stark because that was actually won on summary judgment. And the Stark was related not to the, uh, to the surgeries? Uh, but related not to... Not so much. Well, the, the way I understood it is that it, it is all related to... The surgeries are all related to the Stark, but you don't need any of that to still have a Stark violation because the Stark violation was based on the contract and 
when I heard the government and my attorneys talk about this, they called all those other facts with the unnecessary surgeries, the upcoding, using nurses to do physician services. Those were sexy facts that would help when they would litigate the case. Yeah, let's just talk about the sexy facts here. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about the sexy facts. <laughs> okay. You can, and yeah. I didn't make that up. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. So you're, you're the director of physician services. You're, uh, you know, reviewing what is going on in the hospital. And to, in your eye, you're, again, you're not a mm-hmm. doctor, but you see something that you think is amiss. You, th- you see that there's uh, surgeons in your hospital that are five times as busy as w- what the average is, and you become, let's say, concerned about this. And I, you don't know that there's mm-hmm. any problem necessarily, but it seems like uh, there's an aberration. Um, at this point, when you think, well, there's something here, I'm not sure exactly what it is, what do you do? What do you do to pursue this further, to figure out exactly what is going on? Okay, so the complaint with the unnecessary surgeries actually happened when I worked in compliance, and that was other physicians complaining that one physician was doing unnecessary surgeries, an office manager complained the these were actually allegations coming to compliance for compliance to investigate. So to, I thought at that point that these were, you know, completely separate from the contract issues. And when I was uh, promoted to director of physician services, one of the things I was asked to do was to clean up the contracts and improve the poor collections because the doctors making $2 million a year, we were only collecting 30%. So they wanted more money than that. I see. Um, and, and when I started looking at these contracts, the first thing I noticed was that oncology, which was their favorite contracts because the physicians had skin in the game, administration wanted this contract duplicated for the other areas because it worked so well at containing costs. And I brought up that I thought, according to our policy, not even going online and reading about Stark, we had a Stark policy that was created in compliance, and we broke our own policy because our policy said we can't give hospital profit sharing to an employed physician. So when I brought that up, um, you know, um, I went to legal, I went to compliance, and it ended up being that the associate counsel agreed with me that this was a Stark violation. So you were and initially in- bringing it up as, look, I found this issue. Um, uh-huh. I think it's something that we need to address internally. It wasn't like it was a big scandalous thing. It was just uh, as part of your job, you found that you weren't necessarily complying with policy and and you brought it to the attention of, like you said, to counsel and to who else, your superiors? To counsel, to my direct boss, and compliance. And um, then what? What which, was? What then? What did they do after that? After that happened? Um, well, the first time they thought I was um, exaggerating that it wasn't as bad because what I tried to explain when I brought this issue up, based on all the services by these physicians, you know, the amount of money that tainted based on these referrals is, yes. you know, millions of dollars. So it was really big and. Um, then I was told things like, um, you know, I had to thread lightly. Um, counsel one time told me that, well, we're, we're not liable under the False Claims Act because we're at state of the arm. So no one is going to do anything about it, meaning we don't have to worry about a whistleblower because we don't have to worry about 
the False Claims Act since we're in essence part of the state. Um, and I didn't really understand that and I didn't quite understand Stark, but the way I tried to look at this, um, my mom at the time was going through cancer treatment in Norway and I'm trying to look at her physician being incentivized based on the way we were incentivizing, would I then trust that she got the right drugs based on the physician's profit sharing? Right. Um, so that's how I knew it was wrong. I'm not an attorney to understand you know, the, all the things about Stark, but I knew that what we were doing was wrong. But you and felt that a doctor that was making recommendations for medical treatment might be compromised by the fact that he or she was uh, would be getting a return uh, depending on the type of uh, the type of treatment that they recommended. Yes, and because I knew from working in compliance that Stark was a strict liability law. I knew that we didn't need proof that the doctor would do that. I knew that the contract didn't in itself was not okay. Right. Um, so even so, if it was so, perfectly uh, re, uh, appropriate medically. Uh, yes. the, the legal uh, transaction was one that was banned by, uh, by, by Stark. Yes. So when the end, so that was on the oncology side, on the neurosurgery side, we had one physician that for the last 12 years had not had anyone audit his services. And when I finally got access to go in and look at it for 12 years, he had billed nothing but the highest level code, uh, level four or five in every single category. He had no other codes built in his charge master, so he couldn't even do a low level code. He, um, office manager would enter charges before the patient were seen. If mm. a patient was in the hospital, they would get a critical care charge or a high level hospital charge every single day, even if no one saw them. So when I was trying to get these physicians to discontinue the upcoding and the things they were doing, it was almost impossible to get them to change because they'd not had training before. And it would impact their bonus pay if they no longer built for all these services. So that's how the Stark, um, even though that's what um, was the settlement on, we had all these coding issues on the back end that was impossible to fix. So they're all kind and of that related. was so we had so we had multiple issues here. One was the Stark, mm -hmm. which was the legal arrangement where it incentivized uh, the doctors. The other is the, yep. the and that was Stark, and the other was the False Claims Act which is uh, uh, the False Claims Act is a means of combating frauds by private contractors, uh, which would be the upcharging um, and the charging for things that perhaps didn't occur. Yes, and where they would have to then, they would, you know, if um, going to court under the False Claims Act, it would be treble damages based on the claim, uh, plus, I think at the time it was $11,000 per claim. That's how when the damages were calculated, it was over a billion dollars at one time that the DOJ um, put Halifax on the hook for. And when we're talking about the, the neurosurgeon uh, issue, mm -hmm. um, my understanding that there were literally thousands of uh, spinal fusions that were called into question uh, as to whether they were medically necessary. I understand there wasn't a final determination on that, but there was at least the possibility that there were uh, thousands of surgeries that uh, were of questionable necessity, right? Um, and I don't know the number. I know that 
um, the allegation for the unnecessary or for the unnecessary spinal fusions came as early, I want to say as 2005 or six, when I had just started in compliance. And at that time, it was recommended that a peer review should be done to make sure they were okay based on the um, complaints we had received. And also based on the fact that one of the surgeons, when they looked at his work RVUs, he was working as if he were five people, mm. um, which is almost impossible um, when you look at utilization. And when I was promoted in 2008, I learned that that peer review had never been done. So I kept asking for it as a protection for the physician to make sure, you know, his services were okay. And it wasn't until 2010 that the peer review actually took place. So you're talking about a lot of years with nothing happening. Right. So then the, you did the peer review. The, you took 10 mm -hmm. sample, right? You took 10 sample spinal fusions and gave it to uh, a, a healthcare auditing business to look at. Is that is that correct? Uh, I didn't, but the, the hospital, hospital did. did yes. yes. And right. I should have never seen the results for that because in 2010, um, they had already found out that I was the whistleblower. So I should have never really seen that. Um, but one of the things that happened with the results is that um, one of the physicians that were the reviewer that had questions um, called me uh, actually called compliance and no longer worked there and she, she couldn't get a hold of anyone so she had called my cell phone because it was on my answering machine that compliance had given her the number to and because I talked to one of the reviewer and she was only one of many uh, they say you know in their defense that you know the peer review is invalid because I had a personal relationship with this physician so <laughs> there's a lot of crazy things like that so so there's a there's a number of things going on that mm -hmm. are a potential violations you bring it to your superiors they say don't rock the boat um, and then what what happens then what do you do well, I kept bringing it to compliance, and what, what made it difficult for me is I would be in front of all the employees when we had new orientation with maybe 100 employees every month, and I would teach them what the False Claims Act was and how proud we were of our value-based um, compliance program because we had a great program, and we um, taught compliance and told everyone we did this so we wouldn't become the Enron on Daytona Beach. And I would go back to my um, compliance officer and I said, you know, it's difficult to stand there and tell this to these people and then know that on the back end, none of these things are being dealt with. And the compliance officer got mad at me and he, he said, you know, my loyalty has to be to the hospital and not the United States government. And if I ever thought about becoming a whistleblower, I should resign. So and, so what did yeah. you do, though? So then what happened at some point? Okay. You did go to the U.S. government or did you well, did you did you just commenced the loss the whistle the lawsuit well so what happened at this point so now we're the when i found out about the oncology contract uh, back in september october of 2008 when i brought it to our associate counsel she told me um, that she agreed with me she actually wrote a formal memo on how we uh, were breaking the stark law i guess you know, like a legal memo. Yeah. And that that was confidential, but it was emailed to me as well because, um, you know, I'm the one who 
told them to look into this. And this is what they later called a smoking gun because it kind of proved that we knew. And then I was in October 2008. I thought we found the problem. We're going to self-report. And, you know, that's what everyone would do in compliance. You really, you know, People make mistakes, and when you make mistakes, there are things you can do. In our case, I thought for sure we would self-report and didn't think much of it. You know, I was still trying to correct coding issues. So in March of 2009, I'm over in um, the finance department, and I'm reviewing more contracts with finance looking for these issues. And I hear from finance that nothing was done about the oncology contract and nobody wanted to be the bad guy and tell the physicians they couldn't get their bonus pool that month. So they ended up paying them in March anyway. It was a late payment, but they all got their incentive and nothing was changed. So now I'm sitting there thinking, okay, we identify a huge Stark issue. We have it in a lot of our contracts. Uh, we know it's wrong. We get an outside or we write a memo. And then we decide to pay it anyway. So I go back to legal and I ask, you know, what happened? Why did we pay? I thought we were going to self-report. And the associate counsel at the time, she told me that we got an outside opinion that said we would be okay. But it would not hold up in court. So she said if anyone told anyone or it went to court, we would just sue the outside company, legal company that gave us the opinion for malpractice. And I remember thinking at that point that um, this could be criminal because now we knew we had a problem and we didn't do anything about it. And I was afraid based on all the education I had taken and to stay on top of compliance that I would be held to a higher standard. That you were going so, to be, be the fall guy here. Oh, absolutely. So, absolutely. So then, so, so what was the step that you took that was outside of... Um, Outside of Halifax Health. So you obviously did something outside of Halifax Health. You weren't getting any uh, the results that you had hoped for. And then what was the next step outside of Halifax Health? Well, and most, uh, usually people at that time start Googling for fraud and what to do. But because I worked in compliance, I knew, I knew that I couldn't just go to the OIG or the DOJ, that my claim would be lost and it would be dangerous. So I started calling um, attorneys. I went to the Taxpayers Against Fraud website. I looked for similar cases, found an attorney there. I didn't want someone from a really large firm, and I didn't want anyone in Florida because we were Halifax Health was so connected. So, so I knew so I had to leave the state. So your next step was to go to counsel rather than DOJ. And, oh, yes. And then you actually, you, uh, under the uh, whistleblower law, were able to commence a lawsuit um, with your counsel. Is that right? Yes, but when I went to the counsel, my hope was that he would tell me that I could leave my job and not do anything. And then if someone else sued, I would be, wouldn't be implicated in any way. And the way, you know, after conversations and all the information I had, I, I was very angry to kind of learn that I, I didn't really have a choice. I knew that I had to tell someone, but I didn't think, I, I call it my choiceless choice. Um, I was angry that I'm the one who had to come forward. I thought with all the times I had been to legal, telling them about my concern, having them agree with me, that they would do something about it. So, they, so, so I had to work through sense, my anger. <laughs> there was a sense that uh, if you did not take a step to try to stop this, that you would also be held responsible. It wasn't enough to just walk away. 
It, yes. And I even thought that, so I went, I called attorneys at the end of March. I actually called the day after I found out that we had paid the physicians because that to me was huge. Um, and when so I called it, you talked to counsel yeah. and then you, mm -hmm. um, it, the decision was made to commence the lawsuit, right? Not for another three months. Okay. I actually was probably, but I told you, I want to get to the sexy part. I want to get to the sexy okay. part. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. Did anything good happen in those last, in those intervening three months, uh, before commencing the lawsuit? No, except I was very naive and I thought that if I worked harder, I could kind of convince them to do the right thing. And my attorney said from day one that, you know, nothing is going to change. They're, you know, they're not going to do anything. And I thought, well, maybe if I do this or I do that, that they'll see that they have to do something. And the attorney also told me that I couldn't wait too long. I had so many issues. And in other cases, you know, you have to be the first one to file or it gets very complicated. So the lesson so, here is, is always listen to your attorney right away. I guess. Yeah. Right away. <laughs> yeah. So you eventually commenced the, the lawsuit, um, yes. that encart that covered all of these. And then by doing that, uh, um, that attracted the attention of DOJ and DOJ actually also intervened and became part of the lawsuit as well. Yeah, it just didn't happen that easy. We filed the lawsuit. Well, so it's only June like a 30-minute podcast. So we okay. Well, it took, it took two years for them to intervene, two and a half two, years. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, what was it that, which I thought was unusual. Yeah, what was it that, why did it take them so long to get uh, to get involved? Well, I don't know that other than the fact that there was a lot of issues to go through. And when they intervened on the start. Um, yeah. I think they chose that because it was the low-hanging fruit. It was the easiest one. It was right in the contracts. The dollar amount was really high, and like you said, there was a lot. It wasn't just a sentence in the contract. There was a lot of sexy fact to support right. that. You know, we it it resulted in all this other bad behavior, such as the so, potential unnecessary surgeries and all these other. So things. all this other business started to come out as well. Uh, yes. Yeah. So now, so you're the whistleblower, you bring the lawsuit, this is going on for a couple of years, yet you're still employed at the time by Halifax. That must have been uh, a little uncomfortable. Uh, to say the least. Um, Did they still invite you to the office uh, birthday parties? No, I I haven't been to a Christmas party in a long time. <laughs> but I, I will say this. I did get to go to the manager meetings, and um, I did not want to go. I went to the weekly manager meeting, and they would talk about me as if I was not in the room by saying things like, with the lawsuit, it's nothing to worry about. There is someone here who doesn't agree with that, but everyone else knows we haven't done anything wrong. Mm. Um, to, sh to show you the culture at Halifax, and this was after the subpoenas and after they knew it was me, we had one manager meeting where our director of our rep operations and revenue literally brought a boombox and danced to show me the money. Um, no concern about the lawsuit whatsoever. And it took them a year to find out it was me. The case was unsealed after one year, which I is see. unusual. As, that's very unusual, I think. Um, and the whole time before it was unsealed, I would sit in the meetings where they just, it was nothing about 
our liability, what we did, it was always about who would do this. Like it was, you know, whoever did this is in a lot of trouble. So trying to figure out um, so who that, it was. Yeah. Yes. And they thought, this is the funny thing too. They thought it was a physician that knew everything they did wrong. I see. Let me ask you this. So there, there was a number of patients that were involved, at least, in either the overbilling or the unnecessary or the allegedly unnecessary mm-hmm. um, surgeries. Was there ever uh, an effort by any of the patients to try to seek some redress against either the hospital or the doctors for this? Um, it sounds just heart wrenching that someone would go. I mean, I don't even like getting uh, given blood, and someone's <laughs> going to go get a spinal fusion that may or may not be necessary. It just is is heart wrenching. Well, the Washington Post wrote an article uh, maybe in 2015. I think I, I'm not sure, but they wrote an article on these spinal fusions and had interviewed some patients that had really bad um, surgeries. And uh, what I had trouble with is when this case settled and people saw the award that was given to the whistleblower and the attorneys and heard about these allegations and heard about the peer review, I was receiving phone calls on a daily basis from patients who were, why didn't you speak up sooner? Why is there nothing for us? And I had probably three patients that had called me, and I don't know how they got my number at the time. but they would say that they had a really bad surgery. They went to an attorney and the attorney wouldn't take their case because all the a lot of the attorneys in Daytona were connected. Right. So they couldn't get an attorney to get their case. And one patient that had gone to the Mayo Clinic and one to UF was urged to get an attorney, but she said I was too sick to travel. Hmm. So, you know, I do know that there are several of them that tried to seek attorneys after the case, but I think there is a statute of limitation. So that was hard for me to have these people call me. So the end result was that there was a a lot of legal wrangling um, and a lot Mm -hmm. of motions, but it ended up there being a settlement with, at least with the DOJ part of $86 million paid by Halifax without, I guess, without necessarily uh, admitting anything there was a settlement of $86 million. Part of that went to the whistleblower, yourself and your lawyers, uh, Mm -hmm. correct? And the the rest went to the DOJ. Now, does the DOJ do anything to try to, does the remainder of that money, is any of that ever used to help assist the patients or that goes back into the, the federal government's fund? You know, I'm assuming that that goes back into the Medicare trust fund. But the first thing you said, you said that they didn't admit any guilt. They actually had to admit that they violated the Stark law because right. the winning that on summary judgment. So their defense was that they didn't do anything except violating the Stark law. Uh, but that's what cost them the $86 million. Right. Um so you're saying some of the patients were not only were they upset with the hospital, but they were a little bit resentful of you um, yes. because, uh, A, you were in the hospital, you did have knowledge of what was going on, and then as a result of this lawsuit, you got a pretty substantial uh, result, which is required under the law that the whistleblower actually get a, a per- whistleblower and, and their attorneys get a percentage. And so yes. there was some feeling that perhaps you profited from 
from a the wrongdoing and b you know the the problems that uh, were perpetrated upon some of the um, patients. Yes, and um, you know since I'm from Norway, a lot of the media attention there was that such a big uh, reward could be given to a whistleblower when all I in essence did was do my job. I you know when. Halifax didn't listen to me. I went to an attorney and then to the DOJ and the OIG, which everyone in my country felt that that's what you're supposed to do when, you know, patients are getting hurt and all of that. So why do you get money for that? And before going through this case, I may have agreed on that. Like, why would you need to? Now, five years since this happened and realizing that I was in my 40s when this happened and you can never get another job. Um, there, you know, I, I think it's crazy when you look at the statistics for whistleblowing, how many people do not get anything like typically 80 percent get no reward at all. And 50 percent of the ones that get a reward, it's less than 300,000. And when your career is destroyed, that's right. heartbreaking. And, um, and, so, you've, and you've felt since then that because this case was so prominent and you were so closely associated with it, that you uh, throughout the rest of your career will be associated as a whistleblower. Oh, absolutely. Which has a and stigma, even, you believe. It's a very big stigma. And I'll even have companies that reach out to me that want to hire me. And I tell them I don't want to go through the process because I've done this a numerous time. And usually after two months of the hiring process and I have an offer, I have a start date, there is someone on the board that says, hey, wait a minute, this is not good for business. You need to retract that offer. And I even have that in writing. Yeah. And had I not had that in writing, I don't think going into this, I would have known that it was that bad. What advice would you give to someone that's in an institution that feels as though there might be something going on that uh, needs attention? It's not getting the attention that it deserves from its from him or, or his or her superiors, and is contemplating doing something like this. What advice would you give? To speak to an attorney and to look at the whole scenario. You know, I am a big proponent and continue to speak on this issue because I want people to do the right thing. Um, you know, we're all going to be Medicare patients one day. And in my particular case, I would love for someone to speak up to think that these things happen. And, you know, we're all going to be exposed to that, I think is bad. But sometimes if you're a young individual early in your career, you need to consider what it's going to do. And till something changes the way whistleblowers are accepted and getting jobs, you, you have to look at everything. You can't just blow the whistle before you've looked at what's actually going to happen. Well, Ellen, thank you very much for sharing your story with us here. It's uh, obviously a very dramatic tale, and uh, we appreciate you sharing it with us. We have a feature on Miranda Co Warnings called Music Book or Movie, where you can share uh, a music book uh, or, or movie that uh, has some meaning to you. Is there something that you want to share with our listeners? Well, from a book perspective, um, I read a lot and, you know, unfortunately, most of the time it's federal, federal regulations relating to billing. But right before the case ended, I, I had read. You, you have to, you're supposed to keep it <laughs> sexy. 
Okay, well, I what I find is sexy is that I read the book on Sheryl Sandberg's. Her book is called Lean In, Woman Work, and the Will to Lead. And coming from Norway, this was kind of a great book for me because it talks about not doubting your ability to combine work, family, and, you know, to lean in and, you know, not be ashamed of doing that. And when you come from Norway, we have something called the Yanta Law, which sometimes is limiting in the sense that, it tells you that you're not better than anyone else. Although in my case, I used that to my advantage during the case because I wasn't afraid of looking at what the CEO or the attorney said and not believe them just based on their social status. But what made this book special to me is right after the case ended, I went to the Healthcare Compliance Association um, annual conference in San Diego because I was a speaker. I didn't want to go, but it was too short notice to cancel. And in his opening speech at the seminar, the opening remarks are done by Daniel Levinson, who's the inspector general. And he was referring to the um, Halifax settlement and what his words were. That's part of the speak uh, speech is that the $85 million settlement with Halifax resulted because a compliance officer official who raised the issue about payment to physicians looking like they violated Stark was not really being listened to and it struck me struck me that what she was doing was leaning into her work and he subscribes to the notion that everybody in compliance should be leaning in so I was just dumbfounded that I had just read this book and that our um, officer of inspector general um, actually had read this book <laughs> so um, that's kind of my book relating to the story as I think um it helped me with everything that I was going through and listening to Levinson at this compliance conference, it made me feel more than anything that they appreciated what I did. When everyone around me in my community look at me and think I'm the reason while $140 million uh, or $120 million was spent on this lawsuit instead of healthcare. So, right. Yep. Well, so that's my favorite. <laughs> well, thank you. Lean in. Uh, uh, that's a nice tie-in, I think, with your story. Ellen Backlid-Kunz, we thank you for uh, joining us and for sharing your story uh, with us here at Miranda Warning. So thank you very much, Ellen. Thank you. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't. <laughs>